This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles for our sermon text today, Matthew chapter 27. We are looking at verses 27 through 44. Matthew chapter 27, hear the word of God. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But... When he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with his scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask for your grace as we turn our attention to this portion of your word this morning. Open our eyes to see those things that you would show to us. And our hearts and minds to learn those lessons that you have for us today. Father, we pray that we would experience your grace and grow in it, even in the study of your word now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Right? Wrong. Nothing could be further from the truth, because we all know The reality is that long after physical bruises may heal, the wounds and the scars inflicted by words can fester and hurt for a lifetime. As we look at this passage here before us, uh, we see that a significant component of Jesus' suffering 
between his trial and his execution was the mocking that he endured from various quarters. Some of that was physical, but a great deal of that was verbal. It was words, words that no doubt hurt very badly. And as we look at this passage this morning, we do want to learn the lesson uh, that part of Jesus' suffering, uh, a significant part, was this abuse, this ridicule, this mocking that he suffered at the hands of those who were present and involved at his crucifixion. This ridicule actually came from a number of different quarters. And what I want us to do as we study this passage is simply to divide it in terms of these various um, sources of the mocking that Jesus endured. So let's look at that. First of all, most obviously, this ridicule, this mocking toward Jesus, came from the Roman soldiers who had charge of him. We see this in verses 27 through 31. Jesus has been before Pilate, and we saw last week that whole episode with the crowd calling for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be destroyed uh, as they were egged on by the Jewish leaders uh, to make that choice. And so that's what happens. And finally, Pilate, uh, despite his reluctance to have Jesus executed, yields to this, uh, this mob, this crowd, and uh, releases to them Barabbas, and has Jesus scourged, whipped, flogged, and then hands him over to be crucified. And so we pick up in verse 27. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, the praetorium. Now, Pilate did not reside in the town of Jerusalem. He resided in Caesarea. That was actually his, where he lived, but he was in Jerusalem, uh, and this would probably be the home he stayed in, uh, the headquarters uh, when he was present in Jerusalem. Don't know exactly where that might have been. Maybe Herod's palace, maybe the Tower of Antonio, we don't know. Uh, they gathered the whole battalion, this cohort before him. This It's a big crowd. A, a battalion, a Roman cohort, would be about a tenth the size of a legion. A full legion was 6,000, so we're probably talking about 600 men here in this battalion or Roman cohort. Uh, and they all gather there with Jesus as they're waiting, they're holding him prior to his execution. And they decide to have some fun. And this guy's accused of being a king. Oh, well, the king he is then, and uh, we'll make the most of that. That's just royal, isn't it, that this man should be a king. Well, let's play this uh, to the maximum. And so we read how they took Jesus, they stripped him, and they put a scarlet robe on him. This would have been uh, an officer's uh, robe or garment um, that would have been there. Easy, of course, to come across. Probably found an old one there and put this on Jesus. And uh, what's a king without a crown, right? And so they go out and they find some thorns and they plate this together into a wreath and they place that down on Jesus's head, which not only, of course, was part of the mockery, but was another way of inflicting physical pain on him as those thorns dug into his head, his scalp, his brow. They put that on his head, and they put a reed in his right hand. King needs a scepter, right? Only appropriate. And so they put this reed in his hand. Uh, the word could refer to everything from sort of a bulrush type of uh, reed to a rod itself. Uh, we don't know exactly what it was that he had there, but they put that into his hand 
And uh, they kneel down before this uh, parody of royalty. And they mock him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And in their contempt, they spit on him. And they grab that reed out of his hand, and they begin to strike him on the head with it, which, of course, if it was a softer reed, would have uh, not been as painful as if it had been a hard rod, uh, which certainly would not only have hit him in the head, but driven the thorns uh, into his skin even further. And it says, when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, and they put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. And so the first source of this mockery of Jesus comes from these soldiers, these Roman soldiers, probably often bored and saw the opportunity to have some fun here at the expense of this ridiculous and by this point bloody and, um, as they saw it, inconsequential man who was before them. And so that's precisely what they do. But as is often the case in Matthew, there is tremendous irony here. Because they were, in fact, bowing for a king. And not just one who was a king in the way that they could conceive of it, but one whose majesty as a king was so far beyond their comprehension that truly, as Jesus said, they had no idea what they were doing and who it was. If they had only known the one before whom they were bowing and the one whom they were ridiculing, they would have been struck stiff with terror. And yet there they were mocking Jesus. So the first source of this ridicule was the soldiers themselves, and they find the time has come to take Jesus out. We don't know how long this was that Jesus was there, probably not real, real long. Roman justice tended to follow swiftly after the verdict was given, and so they lead Jesus away to crucify him. So we pick up the narrative in verse 32. As they're going out, Jesus, as was typically the case, would have been carrying the cross beam of his cross, and apparently not doing a real good job of it. Uh, Not that it was that tremendous a burden for a grown man to carry, but think about the condition Jesus was in at this point. Think about what all he has endured in the last 24 hours. After celebrating the Passover and instituting the Lord's Supper with his disciples, then there's that time in the Garden of Gethsemane, his agony in prayer, and... wrestling with his father over this, which must have been emotionally and physically draining as well. There is the arrest. There is the desertion of his disciples. There was the meetings with the Jewish leaders, and there was beating that took place there. There was physical abuse that took place in that. And then his interrogation before the Roman governor, Pilate, uh, and all that took place with that. And uh, then, of course, The scourging, which itself, in and of itself, would have probably rendered him incapable of of doing a whole lot physically, um, as that involves at least the tearing of the skin, possibly even the exposure of the bones, a loss of blood that went along with that. Uh, Throw in with all of that just the loss of sleep, going a night without sleep, and it's no wonder Jesus was not able to just uh, easily carry along that crossbeam out the city gates. And so as he's going, they find this man, a man named Simon, a man from uh, Cyrene, from outside, and they compel this man to carry the cross. They impress him into their service. The soldiers are about to help Jesus with this load that he is carrying, and so they impress this man. Uh, interestingly, Mark tells us he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. 
Now, we read that and go, so what? But the way he says it seems to imply that at least those early on who read his gospel would go, oh, okay, that's who he is. It would have made some connection. Apparently, Alexander and Rufus, his sons, would have been known to the believers, which seems to imply they were believers themselves. Why else would Mark have mentioned their names? People like that. Why would he have mentioned their names? But that they themselves were believers, which implies maybe, we don't know, but maybe Simon himself, by virtue of the things that he witnessed and experienced that day, became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. If not then, then later, And Alexander and Rufus may have been covenant children raised up. And so Mark says this man was their father, as if they should know exactly who it is he's talking about. So this experience may well have changed Simon's life forever. And so he assisted Jesus in carrying the cross beam out to Golgotha. It says when they came to a place called Golgotha, uh, which Matthew translates means place of a skull, Golgotha, is an Aramaic word, place of the skull. Uh, It's interesting that we often refer to that place by another name, Calvary, which comes from the Latin word calvaria, which means a skull. Uh, Calvary uh, also means a skull. But we don't know why it was called that. Some have suggested that it was a hill that sort of looked like or maybe in silhouette appeared to be or reminded one of a skull. The problem is there's nothing in the Bible that says Jesus was crucified on a hill. We just sang a hymn. There is a green hill far away without a city wall. Now, I like that hymn, but we don't know if it was a hill. There's nothing in the Bible about it that was a hill. It tends to be one of those things that through hymns or just assumption grows, like many of the things we assume about the Christmas account in in the Bible, the birth of Jesus, that once you inspect the Bible, you find there's really no basis for it. Um... It doesn't say there was a hill. It doesn't say there wasn't, but it doesn't say there was one. Uh, we know it was outside the city. That's typically where they would lead people to crucify them. Uh, well, some have suggested maybe it was a place where, since executions took place, the skulls of the executed were left lying around. Do you really think the Jews would leave the skulls of the dead lying around on the ground outside their city? No way. Uh, in Jeremiah, we've seen that part of the judgment Part of the horror of what would take place in the siege in the, as, uh, of Jerusalem as the judgment of God was the dead being left unburied. Over and over that's mentioned, you know, that their bodies would be left unburied. And that, that's a, an expression of the horror of what was going to happen. The Jews weren't about to leave skulls lying around. And even more likely because John tells us there was a garden nearby or that this was in or near a garden. And so it's all the more unlikely that the skulls would just be lying around. Fact, uh, fact is, we don't know why. It was called the place of the skull. By the way, it's not the place of the skulls, the place of a skull. Uh, we don't know. Uh, maybe just the association with death, and this was where the Romans typically would do crucifixions. We don't know. But that's where they were. And they take Jesus there, and they offer him wine to drink mixed with gall, which probably was an expression of mercy intended to dull the senses Uh, something of a slight anesthetic. Others have suggested it was not mercy at all, but more mocking as the soldiers gave him their typical bitter wine to drink and he wouldn't touch it. Uh, But probably an expression of mercy meant to dull the senses a little bit before he was nailed to that cross. But he wouldn't drink it. Tasted it and didn't want any more which, if anything, would express his desire when he gave himself for sinners to experience that to the full. 
uh, not willing to have his senses dulled in the least to what he was about to experience. And now comes one of the strangest things, I think, in Matthew's Gospel. Verse 35. And when they had crucified him, or having crucified him, they divided his garments. That in a simple word, not even the main verb, but a participle and a subordinate clause for you language lovers, not even the main part of the sentence, Matthew refers to his crucifixion. You know, so much we make of that. Matthew passes over it with a word, and it's not even the main word in the sentence. He doesn't say they crucified him. He said, having crucified him, they cast lots for his clothing. You see, Matthew's concern, different from ours so often, is not really involved with the physical pain Jesus endured, obviously considerable. But Matthew is concerned with something deeper, something far more important. Not Jesus as the one who hurt physically, but Jesus as the sin bearer. And we'll look, Lord willing, at that more next week as we look at his actual death. Uh, But it's interesting that, that Matthew mentions this, one of the most horrific and agonizing forms of death devised by the cruelest intentions of man with a mere word. Having crucified him... They cast lots for his clothing. And notice the fulfillment there from Psalm twenty-two, eighteen that we read earlier. The Roman soldiers, uh, and typically it would be four assigned to do a crucifixion, probably four out of the same battalion that we read about earlier. Um, they would be assigned to do the crucifixion, grim business to be sure, but one of the perks of doing that was they were entitled to whatever the prisoner had on him at the time. Because you see, pictures to the contrary, Jesus, as others were, was crucified naked. Nothing on. It was part of the humiliation. And the soldiers got to claim his personal possessions. And they did. What few clothing items of clothing he had, they took and divided But he also had a tunic, and they didn't want to divide that. That was more valuable. It was seamless. It would be sort of an undergarment worn under robes or whatever, other clothing. And so not wanting to divide that up, they cast lots for it. Uh, And the winner got, it's sort of like drawing straws, the winner got the tunic. And then the Roman soldiers sat down and kept watch over him there. They had to wait until he died, watch him until he died, not only to see what happened to him, but possibly to prevent any kind of rescue effort to run in, get Jesus off the cross or any other prisoner and take him away and try to revive him and try to heal him. And so they're regarding him as well as watching him. And we read in verse 37, over his head they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. This, I would suggest, is the second source of mocking that Jesus endured uh, because that was what they had accused him of to the Romans, and yet the, the difference between who this poor man was dying on a Roman cross and the title, the king of the Jews, was obviously meant to be funny. It was meant to ridicule any pretensions to a crown, and probably on Pilate's part, because the Jews objected to that. Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. It was also intended to ridicule the Jews, too, on Pilate's part. But it also, in a way, mocked Jesus that this man dying here, bleeding to death on this cross, was said to be the king of the Jews. There is some variation in the wording as you look at the different gospel accounts, but John tells us that it was written in Aramaic and in Greek and in Latin, so it's no surprise, depending on which one they were going with, which, which statement it might have said. But they all basically said that he is the king of 
of the Jews. And so I'd say that's the second source of mockery, was this sign placed above Jesus. Typically in our minds, we think of the cross looking like that. Uh, it could well have with the, uh, with the sign placed up here. It's also possible it was simply a T-shape. And the, 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 the executed man hanging down, there would be room over his head, even on a plain T, to place that uh, placard of the charges against him. But uh, regardless of the shape of the cross, there was this sign that implicitly mocked Jesus. Here he was, the king of the Jews. But again, even in the mocking, there's truth. King of the Jews, he was in fact. By the way, that reflected the Roman thinking, Roman terminology. The, Isra- the, the Jews themselves would have said the king of Israel. But that reflected Pilate's statement of the charge against the king of the Jews, those people, Jews. Another source of the mocking against Jesus, we've seen the soldiers, the sign that was put up. And then the third is the robbers themselves, the men crucified with Jesus. Verse 38, two robbers, or as we've seen, the word probably means rebels, insurrectionists, freedom fighters, were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, of course, with Jesus in the center. Now, Again, a fulfillment of Scripture. He was numbered with the transgressors from Isaiah 58. It just almost is, is boom, 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 fulfillment, fulfillment, fulfillment. So much that Matthew doesn't even bother to draw attention to it here. He was numbered with the transgressors, as Jesus was, crucified with two other convicted criminals, probably rebels. And they're abusing Jesus. And you think, why? They're, they're in the same place he is. But it's possible that if these men were, in fact, Jewish freedom fighters against Rome, then they had nothing but contempt for men like Jesus who spoke, you know, and had influence with the people, uh, but did not help lead uh, the Jews for independence against Rome physically in terms of actual armed revolt. And so they probably had nothing but contempt for Jesus, uh, leader as he was, and yet no use to them in their fight against Rome and efforts to undermine its, its control and rule. And so here they are heaping abuse on Jesus, uh, save us. No doubt they were familiar with the miracles Jesus had done and thought, well, why doesn't he save himself and save us too? You know, miraculously get us off the cross. Now, Matthew doesn't mention it because Matthew's purpose is simply to show how rejected and mocked Jesus was in his death. But Luke does, that one of these men apparently had a change of heart by the grace of God and says to Jesus, uh, remember me. Uh, when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him today, you will be with me in paradise. One of these men was, in fact, saved. Jesus said it himself. And you think about that, uh, how, how his heart was changed, maybe witnessing how Jesus endured all this, how different that was. Certainly by the grace of God, he asks for Jesus to save him. He recognizes there that Jesus is not just a man who failed in being crucified, but is in fact the Messiah. And he believes in him, and Jesus says he's saved. I love J.C. Ryle's comment about that. Ryle comments about the thief who was saved, and he says, one was saved, that none should despair, but only one, that none should presume. In other words, the thief on the cross who was saved tells us that it doesn't matter how vile you are, what wickedness you've done, uh, how many times you've sinned, even at, the, even at the very end of your life, that Christ can save you, that you're not beyond his power to snatch you to himself, even as you're about to pass through the door to hell. 
But lest you think, well, that's fine. I'll live my life the way I want, and I'll uh, repent at the end and be saved. Uh, Ryle reminds us only one that none should presume. There was one of those thieves on the cross who died cursing God. So that we don't presume that we can repent when we want to. We flee to Christ now when he gives us that opportunity, and that was that man's opportunity, and he did, and he was saved, but only one, so that we don't presume to repent any time we want to. The soldiers, the charge laid against him, the men crucified with him, but then also the passers-by themselves, the people passing by, many of whom probably were in that crowd that called for his crucifixion, maybe some simply making their way along saw a spectacle and stopped to watch. You know, the rubberneckers like out on the highway who just need to get a good glimpse of the traffic accident that occurred, the car wreck. Well, these people were rubbernecking. Oh, here's something interesting. Let's have a look and see what's going on. And, and uh, oh, well, let's join in the fun. Uh, verse 39, those who passed by, which may itself be a reference to Lamentation 1, Lamentations 1, verse 12, which says, listen to this, is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. You see, even those people passing by and witnessing the suffering of Jesus may have been a fulfillment of that verse. Lamentations 1, verse 12. Well, they pass by and they're deriding him. They're mocking him, wagging their heads. Psalm 22 again. Either, either in mock sympathy or, or emphasizing their, their ridicule. And they say, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Now, those words made an impact. And remember, those were some of the charges brought against Jesus at his trial. Of course, he never said it. He said, destroy this temple, his body, and he would raise it up in three days, which happened. But here, this idea that Jesus said he's going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, it obviously made it, you know, along the email networks. Everybody's heard of this now. And that's big news. Well, let's make fun of him. Ah, here's this guy who said he's going to tear down the temple. Well, he can't even save himself. Notice what they say. If you are the Son of God. You heard that before? Does that ring a bell? If you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. Does that sound familiar? If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. You don't think that wasn't the last effort of Satan to tempt Jesus? To abandon his role as the crucified, suffering Savior of Israel and become a king Satan's way. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Just like Peter saying, no, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Even in the jeering of these people, the voice of Satan was alluring Jesus saying, come down, come down. You don't have to go through with this. You're the son of God. You've got the power to just step off that cross. Don't you think in the extremity of his pain, Jesus may have been tempted to do that? The issue had already been decided the night before in Gethsemane. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. They could mock all they want. They could tempt all they want. But Jesus had decided the issue. Passersby, even the people coming by, the crowd that went out to watch, mocking this man. And then finally, the last group, the soldiers, the charge, the robbers, the passersby, and then the leaders of Israel themselves, who would think would be of higher dignity than to go out and watch this common execution. But they have a vested interest in seeing that Jesus breathes his last. And so verse 41 
They mock Jesus. They don't talk directly to the condemned prisoner. They talk among themselves, no doubt loudly enough, that Jesus would hear it. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now and we'll believe in him. No, they won't. He would rise from the dead three days later and they wouldn't believe in him. He trusts in God. They don't argue with that. Let God deliver him now if he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. That's uh, Psalm 22, verse 8. I don't know if they're quoting that. They know it, obviously. Maybe they are quoting it and mocking Jesus and yet fulfilling Scripture at the same time. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he desires him because he said, I am the Son of God. So even the leaders, this sort of formal rejection, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Well, what do we make of this? Painful passage to be sure. Uh, I just want to leave you with several thoughts uh, by way of application as we leave this passage to think about, first of all, that we see the depths of the humiliation of Jesus, that he who was the object of the worship of angels allows himself to become the object of the scorn of men, men whom he could have slaughtered with a word, but didn't. In fact, he prayed for his father to forgive them. The humiliation of Jesus, what he endured for you and me in order to save us. Second thing to think about. Because Jesus endured this kind of ridicule and mocking, he knows what it's like, and he knows what you're experiencing when you're ridiculed and made fun of. And I especially want to talk to you who are children. Uh, adults can make fun of each other, but they tend to be a little more sophisticated, a little more hidden about it, not always, but sometimes. But you who are children, you who are in school, that is a hard place to be, because a lot of times people will make fun of you in very open and, in, in fact, painful ways. They may make fun of you because of the way you look or because of the way you talk or because of your hair or because of your clothes or because of this or that or the other. And that hurts. It really does. But I want you to know that you can go to your Savior, Jesus, and he knows what it's like to have people make fun of him, to have them take things he said and throw them back at him and use those things he said to make fun of him. When you pray to Jesus in those situations and even afterward, know that you are going to a Savior who knows what it's like to be made fun of. But even more broadly than that, we also should remember that because of what Jesus endured for us here on the cross, he knows what it's like when we're mocked because of him. When people reject us or make fun of us, specifically because we're Christians. They may make fun of us for other reasons, but when they make fun of us because we are Christians, we're not above Jesus. They mocked him. They'll mock you too if you follow him. First Peter 3, not the passage we read, but a little later on, uh, says, Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, listen to this, So that when you are slandered, when they make fun of you for being a Christian, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You like Jesus, that we don't return evil for evil. We don't revile, but we bless those who persecute us. We pray for those who are our enemies. And Jesus himself did that. He prayed, Father, forgive them. He didn't hurl insults back at them. That is so hard to do, at least in our minds and even with our mouths not to speak against back to those who speak against us. 
But what a powerful witness it is. And maybe that was the witness that led that thief on the cross to believe in Jesus. That he did not return evil for evil. What a powerful testimony. If by the grace of God you were able to endure ridicule and return love. The love of Christ. The love of Christ for you. Because Jesus endured, and even today endures, mocking in movies, in books, in so-called works of art that mock him even to this day. He knows what it's like when you are being mocked for his name's sake. And then the last thing, fourth thing I want us to think about, just by way of application. And this this is something that struck me as I was reading this passage, how easily we are totally oblivious to the most important things that happen. You know, these people were witnessing arguably the central event in human history. They were there. They saw it with their own eyes. And it was totally lost on them. Totally lost on them. They thought they were just seeing the death of another common criminal. They were seeing the turning point of the history of this world. Didn't even know it. You know, but that's true for us. We, we often don't know things in our lives that turn out to be the really big things. Maybe something your parents said to you one day. They don't even remember. But for you, it was a turning point. Maybe something that happened that at the time seemed insignificant and yet turned out to be very important. Chance meeting with this man or this woman who later turns out, chance in God's providence, of course, that turns out to be one day your, your husband or your wife. You know, you don't know what something today may lead to tomorrow. Who knows what a child growing up in this church who hears the gospel may turn out to be in years to come. We just don't know. It's so easy to miss the things that are really important. And these people miss that. How do you not know that today you're hearing the gospel of Christ, of a Savior who loved you and gave himself for you, will not be the turning point of your life, the most important thing that has ever happened to you in the years that God gives you on this Earth. Some of these people, it turned out to be. You know, we read uh, recently Acts three, the healing of the man there at the temple, the beggar, and then the sermon that Peter preaches. That some of these very people, and certainly those who represented them, rejected Christ, whom Pilate wanted to set free, and they crucified him. And Peter talks about this Savior, and that God offers them amnesty. The time is now to repent and be forgiven and receive. Times of refreshing from the Lord. And what happened after that sermon? Two things. The authorities came and arrested Peter and John. Typical. Remember, this was fresh after this with Jesus. They didn't want something else starting up having to do with Jesus. They didn't like what they were saying. So they arrested them and put them away. But something else happened too. Some of those people believed. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about, in the church now, came to about 5,000. Some of those, maybe even some of those who witnessed the death of Jesus, hearing the preaching of the gospel from Peter, believed and became believers in Christ, part of his church. Let me ask you this. Will you go on mocking Jesus by your unbelief and by your indifference to him or hearing the gospel preached to you today, will you believe in him as your Lord and Savior to the salvation of your eternal soul? Which will it be? Because it will be either one or the other. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. Lord Jesus, thank you for enduring all of this, all of this mess, all of this ridicule for us. 
for being willing to go through with the cross, for not coming down off that cross, for serving us and not yourself, even at extreme cost to yourself. Lord Jesus, give us eyes to see who you really are. Help us not miss the day of your visitation to us, the day of salvation, to respond to the gospel, the good news, to be saved and to live for you, bring glory to you in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.